This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another wonderful edition of Wireless Books. We truly are a rare audio book indeed. <laughs> Hello Beth. Hello. Um, I was just fascinated because Beth has managed to, to, to dive along to our opening music and um, it was a beautiful sight. She's got, um, she's got rhythm, our girl. <laughs> Now let's start with the new books and um, see how we get, how we progress. The first one I've got is Yours Cheerfully by A.J. Pierce, and it's actually book two in a sequence. The first book that she wrote was called Dear Mrs. Bird, and these books are set in the Second World War, and our heroine has has become an us is working for a woman's magazine. In the first book, she was helping Mrs. Bird, who was the, the um, what do they call them, the, the problem page or the, the woman's... Agony aunt. This agony yeah. aunt. But Mrs. Bird was um, very old-fashioned, and so our heroine, um, Henrietta, started um, writing back to the people whose letters Mrs. Bird rejected as being too, too racy to print and trying to help them. And the last book ended with Mrs. Bird leaving in a huff and going to um, another another publication. And so we start with the magazine um, re, rejig, rejigging um, responsibilities. And Henrietta is still working there, even though she thought she was bound to be fired because of the difficulties, but no, they've kept her. And now the new agony aunt is actually a woman who already works in the, um, in the magazine who is an... A, an old woman who is nice and sensible and very practical, but she works in production and she didn't really want, she said, oh, I can't do it, I'm not a writer. And so they said, well, Henrietta will open the letters for you and and you tell her what you think and then she'll write the replies for you. So essentially, and this actually works out really well because Henrietta, she really admires her new boss and... Um, and yes, so by the end, by in a few months' time, she's basically doing the whole thing herself, with just a little bit of um, oversight from this other woman. So she's she's happy. And then the magazine is asked to write articles encouraging women to go into war work because although a lot of women were already volunteering or going to, to into war work, there still is a great labour shortage, and they they need these women to go and work in the munition factories and so on. And so she she writes she goes to a munitions factory to see the conditions and talk to some woman and writes a glowing article about how how wonderful it is. But at the same time, she's sort of shocked by what she sees. One of the women is um, her husband's, I guess, in the army, and she has two children, um, a seven-year-old girl and a younger child who is basically a baby. And the seven-year-old and the baby come to work with her, and the seven-year-old baby sits the baby mm-hmm. while she's working mm-hmm. because there's, n- there's nobody else to look after the baby. She hasn't got any family close by. I mean, she can't... You know, she can't ask the neighbours to look after her kids all the time, and so this is her only solution. And there's just no... Sc- 
loquacious setup or, or no mm. thought or provision for it. So they want women to come and work, but they haven't thought about, well, how can we make it so that it's easier for them to do so? It's just that the women have to work their own solutions out. And so Henrietta, of course, can't help getting involved, and she starts to um, she have a bit of a battle with the Ministry of War. So, Oh, a battle with the Ministry of War. <laughs> well, you, you think you'd know who'd win, but uh, Henrietta's got a way of coming up trumps. Now, this book... It's kind of a sweet book, but it also does make you aware of um, just how difficult it actually was. And the first book was, was actually, people really enjoyed it. So that's why I got the second book. So I thought, well, I know a few people will be wanting to read that. I don't know that Beth will be one of them, but there you go. I do have some more, some more gruesome ones for Beth to keep her happy. And this is one that's had very good reviews. It's called Before You Knew My Name. And it's by Jacqueline Bubletz. Well, how would you? Jacqueline Bubletz. (laughs) Thank you. Now, it's, it's one of those books where... A, somebody, a girl is murdered, and it's, it's sort of narrated from her point of view from the other side. And the woman who finds her body, she forms an instant connection with her, and and she tries and um, comes to her in dreams and so forth. So it's sort of a bit mystical, but really not. And it's one of the girl that's murdered, she doesn't have any ID on her, and so she's a, a Jane Doll, which is what they call it in, in America, as everybody knows. I don't know why I'm telling you. Um, and so she's a, a girl that grew up somewhere else and moved to New York, and within a month she she's murdered by somebody in Central Park. And then she's discovered by a woman who is an older woman who has left has left Australia and is starting a new life in New York. And so that although their ages, they're dissimilar in ages, they've got a lot of similarities and if they met in real life they probably could have become friends. And so the person who finds her, um, oh, I've forgotten her name, she, uh, Ruby. Ruby starts this thing called the Murder Club and she starts to investigate and and over time, she actually does uncover. First of all, she finds discovers who who the person is, and then she she actually uncovers the murderer as well. So it's pretty gripping. And oh, I love the cover. A, a yeah. beautiful, beautiful bouquet of flowers. It's just it is a beautiful cover. Well, if you look more closely, it's, it's they're actually propped up against. A, the, a, a I was ch- just about yeah. to say they're oh, propped sorry. up against. A fence. One of those <laughs> a wire, um, fence. wire link fences. So. <laughs> yes, so it's like someone died here. So it's like a mm. floral tribute. And there's the cityscape in the back. It's dark blue, but oh, the flowers are beautiful. Look, there's dahlias and lilies and yes. roses. Oh, it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. I th- well, it's, I think um, it's a very carefully cover. designed cover mm. because it is very attractive when you look at it. Mm. It looks very beautiful and serene but then when you look at and see the where these flowers are you sort of realize there's sort of a, a darker story beneath oh my gosh the woman's name who is from australia really the heroine ruby jones mm-hmm. oh well i'm just thinking ruby jones who has done all that wonderful artwork oh, since those 
terrible mosque killings and her work was on the cover of Time. It's just just a pure coincidence, you know. But I saw Ruby Jones. Oh, Mm. well. Well... Mm, I don't know when that was written, but um, probably the name was picked before. Oh, yeah. Look, I'm mm. not saying. It's just a happy coincidence. Mm. Uh, actually, first published in 2021. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, these are all new, new books. Now, the next one is the latest David Baldacci. And, sorry, the author's hometown is, even though she is um, loves lives in Australia a lot, her hometown is... The west coast of New Zealand's North Island. There you go. So it could be a a bit of a subliminal, mm. um, a, a bit of a um, respectful Tribute. nod. Mm. Mm. Well, you see, I did not know that. Well, now you do. Thank you, Beth. That's very good of mm. you to to keep us up to date. Now, this is the latest David Baldacci, a gambling man. Now, David Baldacci, as we know, is very prolific. Um, and this is the second in his series of um, Alicious um, Archer. And it started off with one good deed. And his hero is actually in, in the start of one good deed. He had he'd been in the army, because this is actually set back just after the Second World War. So he'd gone into the army, he'd been in the Second World War. He got out, um, something happened, Something happened. Um, he was accused of a crime and um, found guilty and was sent to prison. And he claims that he wasn't particularly guilty, but anyway. He so, wasn't particularly <laughs> guilty, I love it. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, carry on. Well, the, you know, it was over some dame and he, he feels that... Um, some really, dame, you're really getting into the character. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm probably just about quoting Bavatum, actually. <laughs> and I'm over that dame. <laughs> well, it starts with him, this book starts with him on a bus and he's heading across the country to go to a chance at a new life and he's been offered a chance to become a private detective because he's got good instincts. But first of all, he's got to get over to California and he's in this bus reflecting on his... On all the how he got to where he is, and he's sort of ruefully reflecting about how he's a bit of a sucker for the ladies, and how he how this and that, and he's sort of aiming, sort of telling himself he's going to do better and not be such a, a sucker and not get involved. Mm. And then the bus stops in Nevada, and he thinks, oh, this is a, an, intriguing, and he jumps off and immediately he high tells it to a casino and immediately meets a dame and, <laughs> and it's all on. So that night he met a dame and he left a tramp the next morning, something like that. Maybe he's a tramp. No, oh, actually. I'm um, just yeah. channeling, you know. No. But so they get, of course, they get caught up in something. And she, The dame is actually a very nice girl. She's an aspiring actress called Liberty Calhoun. <laughs> He's got a great way of words. <laughs> and they decide to sort of team up and travel together because she wants to go to California as well, being a, a, an aspiring actress. And then they um, they arrive in a town rife with corruption. And, of course, yeah, like I say, it's all on. And this is just um, David Baldacci being David Baldacci. And um, this is going to also fly off the shelves, I would imagine. I don't know if you were a big David Baldacci fan. Oh, yeah, look, there's some um, that I really, really mm. enjoyed. And then there's others where I thought, oh, I think I've OD'd on David. 
Baldacci, but I haven't read him for a while. And I, I do really love his his um, books about dames. About yeah. <laughs> now this one is by Louise Cand- Candlish. It's just Candlish. Candlish, okay, called The Heights. Now, the last book that she wrote, you didn't really enjoy too much, but I think I can't this, even remember the name of it. Um, the Passenger. I can't not. Yeah, you went... Just a blank. Yeah, it didn't really float your boat, but this one, actually, I think would really get you going. It's, it's quite a tricksty um, book. It starts off with this woman who is writing a... Tr- True crime story, and she's in this. She's she's doing a bio, autobiography essentially because she's right in the middle of this true crime. And then we cut to her. Um, she's she's got a very unusual job. She's um, a lighting engineer, and she goes to people's houses and, and sorts out their lighting problems. Because it's set in um, London, so mm. you know people with lots of money. Mm. So she's at this woman's house, and it's sort of down in the docklands, and there's lots of shiny new buildings and stuff. And this this building, which is taller than everything else, but it's got it's almost a triangular building. It's got a very strange um, footprint, and the woman whose house that she's at to to adjust her lighting, sort of points it out and says, oh, they wouldn't be able to build that now. And so they're sort of looking at this building, discussing it. And there's a guy at the very top of the building and and our protagonist, who's the name I've forgotten, oh dear, um, she looks up and she sees the, the man who lives in the top apartment and he's standing on the balcony and she she basically has almost freaks out because she recognises them and it's somebody that she believes she killed two years earlier. Oh. And she, he was a, f- a friend of her son and um, there was a, a tragic accident and her son died and, and the friend didn't and she's been sort of vowing vengeance on the friend ever mm. since because she thinks that he is responsible and it's a friend who she never liked and never was was always unhappy that her son was friends with this boy, yeah. and so and she was you know tried to move heaven and earth to stop her son being friends with him, but it didn't work. And so after her son died, she then became one of these people, sort of um, making sure that um, he was punished to the full extent of the law. And and when he got moved from a, a prison to a rehabilitation thing, oh, she she tried to agitate to have him taken out of there because she wanted him to be punished as much as possible so anyway she she sees this man and she immediately decides well I'm just going to have to kill him all over again <laughs> and so well, yeah logical well yeah she she is just she is obsessed and mm. it's really I read a bit of it and you know it's not really my sort of thing and I was thinking oh actually oh, in that case I love it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> No, I thought, oh gosh, actually, this is really quite good. Oh. And I was like, oh, actually, maybe I might write read that later. But um, of course, the our clients come first. The members of the library That's come first. That's right, us punters. Thanks very much. Okay, now um, maybe have a little bit of a break and um, come back Ooh, with some more. Certainly. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Welcome back. Now, quite often people say to me, what do you like to read? And what I like to read are... 
books. I don't even know what term you call them. I like books about how people, how everyday people or how people used to live in the past. So sort of um, sociological history books, I guess. And I've got two books out from the public library, which are, I adored, but I would never buy for the library because I know that most people don't share my strange tastes. But I'm going to talk about them. The first one is What She Ate, which I absolutely loved by Laura Shapiro. And it's Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories. And I'll just run through who the woman she picked. Um, Dorothy Wordsworth, who was the poet's sister. Rosa Lewis, who um, was actually a television series made about her. She was um, a Cockney chef in Edwardian England. Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt, who's the one I want to talk about. Eva Bourne, um, needs no introduction. And Barbara Pym, who was um, a forgotten novelist who had a late resurgence. And Helen Gurley Brown, who um, was the editor of Cosmopolitan and was famous for writing Sex and the Single Girl. But I'm going to talk about Eleanor Roosevelt. Because oh, good. Because it's quite fascinating, and it's really, she concentrates mostly on the period when um, Eleanor was the first lady of of America, and famously, um, her husband w- was the president for four terms, which is very unusual, because most, everybody else has only ever had two terms. But, of course, he was elected in the Depression, and had this great um, modernising um, program and people just people who loved him loved him and it was felt that he had got got America sorry out of the depression and so he kept being re-elected but Eleanor Roosevelt never wanted to be the first lady she sort of she didn't really know what role there would be in being first lady and when she asked her husband well as first lady what should I do he said I'll just do the um, take charge of the domestic things but of course she grew up wealthy and had servants and never did anything particularly domestic and was never much of never much of a cook now everybody knows now that um 13 years into the marriage, there was the, the crisis when she found out that he was having an affair with another woman. And th- she was devastated and went into deep depression, but they couldn't divorce, firstly because it would ruin his political career, and secondly because his he was basically bankrolled by his mother, who had all the money, and his mother said, well, you can get divorced and marry this woman, Franklin, but I will never give you any money again. And so he, he made the choice. So so after that, basically, they although they were married, they were quite had quite separate spheres, and um, he actually kept on the affair, unbeknownst to her. But anyway, when she became First Lady, well, actually, in the lead-up to becoming, forming her own identity, she became enamoured of um, the home economics movement in in America where women were wanting to create their own careers and have their own spheres and move into universities and and specialising in home economics was an acceptable way of doing that because you were, it was an entirely new mm. field that men weren't involved in anyway. Yeah. And she, she Eleanor became really fascinated by the women at Cornell University and they were 
especially because it was a depression, they became obsessed with forming economical and nutritious meals. And so they were obsessed by the price per serve. And so one time she was at Cornell and they were very pleased to, to give a luncheon which only cost seven cents a portion but seemed to consist mainly of raw cabbage <laughs> and Eleanor seemed to toe into it and find it delightful and all the journalists with her were like oh I think it was even at seven cents it was too expensive <laughs> so anyway when she went to the White House she she sort of decided that she wanted to, it was the depression and she wanted to set a good example and that the White House would serve value for money meals and a good wholesome American food and they wouldn't be doing tricked up French cookery or whatnot because the president before that um, Hoover had um, actually had very good menus and so the White House became notorious for the low standard of their food. Now this is um, she about two weeks into becoming after they were elected she, she called the press to the White House and served a prototype menu of the sort of wholesome food she wanted to serve. And this is the menu. Hot stuffed eggs with tomato sauce. Now, hot stuffed eggs were like a picnic staple and to serve them hot was unusual and to put tomato sauce over them was even more unusual. And this... Yeah, the portions were small, which probably just as well. A side of mashed potatoes with whole wheat, bread and butter. And then, as the pudding, it was a watery prune pudding that was... So it sounded really disgusting. And there's a story that um, Ernest Hemingway, his his wife at the time was a good friend with Eleanor Roosevelt, and he she organised... Um, for him to go to a, a dinner at the White House, and as they were, as they pulled into Washington, uh, because they'd gone on by train to get to Washington, as they got off the train, and he was astonished to see his wife rush to the to the um, buffet um, section and grab two sandwiches and and eat them hurriedly. And he said, "What are you doing?" And he said, "Oh, everybody knows that if you're going to the White House, you've got to feed up yeah. beforehand because <laughs> the food is so right. appalling." And he actually did. He wrote to his mother and said how how revolting it was. <laughs> now, part of the problem was the wom- the woman that Eleanor chose to be the housekeeper. She um she was a woman that. Um, Eleanor knew she used she was a member of the Democratic Party and Eleanor used to hire her to bake um, cakes and pies to send around and so it was a and this woman um, who was Hen- Henrietta Nesbitt needed the money because her husband was unemployed and so when the Roosevelt, when the Roosevelt was elected to president, um, Henrietta was was thrilled, but also saddened because her source of income had had gone. So she was thrilled and astonished when Eleanor came to her and said, "I want you to be my housekeeper. I don't, I don't want a professional housekeeper. I want someone I know." But Henrietta had no experience, and she wasn't very good. And um, they just had this hideous diet. Um, she. Um, she, yes, so she was under orders to practice strict economy because of the Depression and later because of wartime. And so her only vision was that of a small town cook. And she, people quite often talked about how horrible the um, the mutton was at the White House. It was actually lamb. 
<laughs> it had been cooked so badly and it was things came out and they were grey and cold and people couldn't even identify what they were. And um, For dinner, she typically offered simple preparations of beef, lamb, chicken and fish. By the time they arrived at the table, they had to be cold and dried out. And she employed occasional novelties which appeared in women's magazines under such names as Seafood Surprise and Ham Hawaiian. Low-cost main dishes like sweetbreads, brains and chicken livers appeared frequently, so frequently that he took to, that RF, RDR took to complaining that he was never given anything else. But the greater, greatest cause of misery seemed to be lunch, which she saw as a fine occasion to save money. She built up a repertoire of dishes based on leftovers and other inexpensive mixtures, and these turned out week after week. Sometimes these mixtures were stuffed into green pepper, other times into a patty shell, but her favourite way to present them was the most straightforward way, on toast. There were curried eggs on toast, mushrooms and oysters on toast, broiled kidneys on toast, braised kidneys on toast, <laughs> lamb kidneys on toast, chipped beef on toast, and a dish called shrimp wriggle, which consisted of shrimp and canned peas heated in white sauce on Ugh. toast. It's all pretty ghastly. They couldn't run a house, but they were running the country. And the other thing is, she was a great one for creamed, putting things in cream. So creamed codfish, creamed fin haddie, creamed mushrooms, creamed carrots, creamed clams, creamed beef, and creamed sweetbreads. And lots and lots of different eggs. And it just was horrific. And every time he, he tried to complain... Eleanor would just basically ignore him. It was like she was a punishment because he was actually quite a gourmet and enjoyed his food, but not not in the White House he didn't. And one time he was ill and his secretary said to him, is there anything you particularly like? And he said, oh, I'd love that white asparagus that comes in cans, but um, the, the housekeeper says they can't get it in Washington, so his secretary turned up with 10 cans within half a day. <laughs> so it just... Yeah, so the poor man was made to suffer. Oh, never mind. Okay, well, thanks for that, Christine. Until next time, everyone. Happy Happy reading. reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.